Uh, last Sunday, uh, Jared did an awesome job while uh, teaching. So that was the last parable too. So we ended on just a super high note with uh, Jared not only can you know, make things look really good visually and is a talented artist, but also uh, really brought his, his, himself last Sunday. So that was really great. And uh, because that is the end of parables, I don't, and we've never really wanted to just churn through books of the Bible or churn through topics and say, oh, great, now what's the next piece of things for us to read? We've always wanted those, the scriptures to really impact our lives for a long time. And so before we even get into today's passage, I wanted to ask, you know, what did the parables do in you uh, as, we, as we read them, as the word of God was, you know, spoken into our lives? Uh, what, what did the scriptures do uh, in you as we studied the parables. And if you weren't here for, for it all, or even if it's your first time, it's okay. You get to like listen to a bunch of other people uh, talk about how the word of God impacted you know, them, which is a pretty cool thing just to like notice. Uh, so yeah, just kind of open floor. What did the parables do in you? Or what, what did the spirit of God do in you as we looked at the parables? Yeah, so like chewing on it, meditating on it, and then trying to see what the implications are. That's really great. Yeah, the parables are like that. They make you do that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That the scriptures can continually speak to you, even if it's stuff you've heard years and years ago and you continue to hear. Yeah, that's awesome. It's nice to look back and see how much weight the topic of the kingdom carries, mm. how much Jesus talked about the kingdom, and how that was woven through all the parables. Yeah. That's awesome. Love it. Yeah. That theme of the kingdom of God is so big. Yeah. So big for today, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Madeline. Yeah, that we, the storytelling is so powerful, we get to see ourselves in the narrative, like the story engulfs our lives. That's so good. Yeah. Um, I don't know how else to say this. I think the plant analogies were really helpful. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, of where we live. Yeah. And walking children around nature. So it just reminded me, I don't know, that... Like, my mom always said, growing up, God works in the natural. Like, people want, like, clouds and, like, all this signs and wonders and, yeah, pillars of fire, exactly. In the natural, and the parables were, like, the exact, like, cow manure examples. Yeah. Which is awesome. Which it does. It, it, like, we, you can't get away from trees, you know? It's like, so 
though I was last week and I was in Arizona, and I used this illustration about rivers and I l- realized there are no rivers here. So I was, I was a little like, so when you travel somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, the natural, it, and that, that God wants to speak to us and that all things really like are sacred because he made them and then that he wants to even speak uh, his words like using them. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. I think something, um, uh, one, of the, one of the things, there's so many good things, our DNA, shout out to the parable guide, our DNA used that, did the Lexio Divina every week, and it was really, really powerful to do that. And one of the parables that comes to mind is like, the reminder, with like one of the three examples of the kingdom going forward, um, with, <laughs> with or without me, like God's, like God's mm. kingdom is coming forward to this earth in a really beautiful and powerful way. And for me, when I think about it going forward, with or without me, it, it like, takes the burden off of me to have to produce something, but it's like this totally. beautiful long-term thing, like a tree that's going to be growing, it's like powerful and moving forward, and we get to just participate in that and like live in that, live in that power. Um, so that was one of the, one of the tree parables. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's such, that's so good. Uh, you know, thanks for Thanks for sharing, and, and I think that the parables will stick with us uh, because it is, you know, he's ex- Jesus was trying to explain these, these topics that we often just pass over, over and over again, but telling these stories, forcing us to put ourselves within the story, f- forcing us to interpret it and process it, uh, I think he really invites ongoing life transformation forever. Uh, and what, one of the things that we did in the parables is we were reading uh, Jesus' stories and the stuff that he was talking about as he went from Galilee through this, this land of Samaria, this ordinary kind of uh, place where people just wanted to pass through it as quickly as possible, a place that was totally outside of the excitement and the thrill of the cities and, and the empires. Like, it was just sort of this throw-in kind of thing. Like, when, when it, that part of the world got conquered, it was just kind of thrown in as a piece and like, oh yeah, we also conquered that little bit too. Like, that was Samaria. And Jesus had taken this journey through the mundane, kind of, if you remember, we talked about that, that Monday through Friday and those things that you just try to get through that, that are not special. And Jesus was telling all of these stories, but he was in a very real way for those 10 chapters on his way to the city of Jerusalem, where he was going from this unreligious place to this very religious, like the center of religious life, which is Jerusalem, to the center of cultural life. Like that's where the kings and the rulers and, and that was the, the images and the symbols and the temples and all of the stuff built there. That was, it was like the, the museum central place where, where if you were anybody of anyone of stature, like that's where you wanted to be. And then he also is on this journey, and he times it so well to when he arrives there, it's at at the center of the calendar itself, too, this week of Passover. It's this high, high point where the people would spend this great festival, all this activity. I mean, people would travel from all over the world to be in the city for a couple months just to big... Uh, piggyback off of these festivals. The first festival, Passover, then the last one, Pentecost. And they were just there to celebrate the story of what God had done for the people a long time ago. And Passover is the celebration of how God rescued them out of slavery uh, through the the, the Red Sea into the desert and then sustained them forever through that. And that Passover is just that time that they they celebrate that. And it's the center, it's like the, the day. It's the week. 
And so Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and then he finally, he comes into the city on that week and this day. You know, the parables really, even the topics of them of grace and repentance and the kingdom of God, all of it has been pointing to this moment, to this week, when Jesus' kingdom will not just be put on uh, words that like we listen to, but, but it becomes action. It comes, becomes this physical thing that you have to see. Uh, there's this, uh, you know, former uh, Los Angeles artist, prophet, his name was Tupac Shakur. You guys remember him? Good, okay, so we're not all completely culturally like naive. Do you guys know who he was? California, okay. Uh, So he said this thing once in this interview, it was like really powerful. He says, don't just sit there uh, and bob your head at the music and then move on. See if what I'm saying, if this stuff, my translation, if this stuff is actually real, see what I'm going to do with the words that I say. So he was saying like, hey, you can get into the groove and you can bob your head and say, oh, this music's really good. This, I love the beat. I love it. it. It feels like a party. But then, you know, he was trying to say explicit things uh, and explicitly. Uh, but he was trying to, to move something and make a point. And he was saying, it's not just the words that I say, but then how am I actually going to live and back it up? And he was making that statement for all of us as we interpret cultural things. And what we see in this holy week with Jesus is it's not just a bunch of words and a bunch of amazing things that he say that we're like, man, I can really get into that story about the parable of the prodigal son. Like, that's a great story. I like the the tree thing. I like the manure thing. Like, oh, like that's really good. What happens in this final week when Jesus gets into Jerusalem is, hey, this is, it's all on. Uh, It's, it's here. It's not words anymore. Jesus isn't doing symbolic gestures. He's actually doing the kingdom, bringing it and becoming king of everything. And so that's what this final week is all about. It begins on Palm Sunday. Uh, We printed off uh, 10 little printed guides for the final week of our Lent devotional. Uh, This final week is really great. If you haven't done it already, it's totally cool. Just take one of them. They're on the table in the back. It's also digitally. You can read it. But please join in on this because it's so, so important. And it's not just a, an Easter thing. Like, it's the, all the moments that are happening through this week are so important. But today is Palm Sunday, and it's all about worship and grief. And it's about the king who leads us in both of those things. And so it's the, today's passage is Luke chapter 19. Uh, and I'm going to read it for you. And it'll be on the screen, but you might want to pull it up on your phone or your Bible because it's, I don't know, but it's... It's good to do it and see it yourself. Uh, It says, Luke chapter 19 says this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say... The Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying this colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes and the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is God's word. This is uh, Palm Sunday. This is the story of Palm Sunday. It is cute with uh, branches and it's fun. Uh, It's ironic in Luke's gospel, it's all about coats and jackets. And so later, if you don't have uh, a palm branch in your hand, you know, just take your jacket off or your hoodie off and wave it in the air. That's like what they were doing here. Uh, but it, this, this thing, Hosanna, that they, that they shout, and we know that from the other passages, the things that they're shouting here, you know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, the, these shouts and these praises that they're giving to him are kind of awkward, and it's a little bit of a, tr- a troubling chant that people are shouting over and over again. Uh, because Jesus is kind of confronting uh, our sense and our need of saving. Because Hosanna, it's not a cool name for God or anything like that. It means literally like, God, save us. God, save us. And here, the most troubling thing that I think that the Gospels and the story of Jesus kind of confronts within us, it's not this troubling thing that there's a God who loves us. Like, that's a wonderful, pleasant thought. Uh, it's not that there's a God who, who cares or, or who wants to heal or transform it. Like, that's, I, I want to get in on that. But there's this statement that has to be said over and over again through the Christian's life, which is, God, I need to be saved. And we struggle so hard to admit when we've done something wrong. If it's one degree or a thousand degrees, we can't admit that we've done mistakes, And if we do, it's all just to save face. It's this sort of PR operation that we do because the the effects of it are coming so strong to us that we say, yeah, you know what? I kind of made a mistake, but here's the thing that happened and why I did it. You know, we can't admit to others that we've neglected them, that there's things that we, we did and there's these things that we left undone. That's so haunting for us. And so the phrase of Jesus, even the name of Jesus, the reason the name of Jesus is so taboo that like you can always say, hey, I thank God, uh, you know, to the man upstairs, you know, for giving me these physical abilities. That's easy. That's accepted. But as soon as someone says in the public sphere, in your workplace, in any place, when you start talking about Jesus, it's it's, uh, terrifying for our culture because it's like God has a name who's personal and knowable, but also that name means the Lord saves sinners. And that's to cry out to Jesus when we're singing his name, all of those things. We are saying over and over again, I am in need of the creator of the universe to intervene with my soul. That's how far gone I am. 
And just a quick aside, one of the most powerful things that we can do as, as believers in this city, in this society, is be a people that admit that we do wrong. To be a people that admit that we sin against other people, to, to do that, to ask for forgiveness. One of the most powerful things you can do as a parent, as a friend, as a spouse, is to go to people and say, you know what, I thought about that interaction the other day, and this is what my heart was doing. These are the things I was worshiping instead, and I didn't even care about you. Please forgive me. Just side note, like, that if you did that in your workplace, you know, if you go to your supervisor and you say, you know what, the other day I wrote that email and I said I was working on it and I, I hadn't worked on it. I was just starting. You know, please forgive me. I want to be an honest person, but I was, I was wrong against you. Or if you go to the people that work for you and you say, you know, in that meeting the other day, I was stressed and I was trying to prove myself to my superiors and I want to gain control and you're doing things differently than me. Please Forgive me for the way that I treated you. I mean, we don't do that. Nobody does that in our work environments. I don't hardly ever um, because we think that we have to continue to build up our status, that we are good enough and that we're, we're deserving of all of these roles and that we never do. To admit wrong is to invite you know, people to think critically of you. But the cry of every Christian is, Please forgive me, I need to be saved. The hardest thing to admit is that you need saving. It's the primary obstacle when we're dealing with people that we love and we want to see our brothers, our sisters, our friends come to know the power of the gospel. The, the big hurdle, one of the big, big hurdles for them is to come to that point and admit neediness. Uh, Wendell Berry, the great writer, uh, poet, uh, read all of his books, You'll be well. Uh, but he, he said this thing once talking about the gospel. He's just like, what's astonishing is not uh, the sin in the gospels, all these characters and how sinful they are. What's amazing and what's astounding is that when these people saw Jesus, they were so needy. Their neediness is what was so surprising. And so you have all of these people over and over again as Jesus is leading and he's walking through life and he's teaching people. You have all these people that come and cry out to him and say, I need to be healed and restored. I need to be saved. Like at the, the group of disciples at, at their core are just a group of women and men who said, I need, I need you. Uh, that's what's remarkable about these people and these characters, that they keep walking with him and they admit, like, the fishing isn't doing it, the tax collecting isn't doing it, the following the rules isn't doing it. Like, I need to be made well, and I think you're the only one. The followers of Jesus in this moment, as Jesus gets this borrowed cult, and there's a lot there, and we've talked about it in the past, so I'm going to skip it this year, and next year maybe we'll, we'll do it real strong. But the cult thing, it's awesome, it's important, but as Jesus kind of comes through these suburbs, basically, of Bethpage and Bethany, and he's going to go back to them, it's where he stays, he was a suburb guy, I guess. Uh, but he, he, there's this Mount of Olives, we hear about it all the time, but it actually overlooks the city, and he's going through this town and this village, and then he starts to descend, and the, the disciples can see the city. You know, and because of all the activity, you kind of have to imagine it's towards the end of the day, the sun is setting, and they just get overwhelmed, remembering, it says, all of the miracles that they had seen. 
They're, they're starting to remember and they're starting to see him and there's something about this city where the king is supposed to reign and they're watching Jesus go and they're remembering all of the sick people that he healed. They're remembering the paralyzed people that stood up and walked and walked with forgiveness. They're remembering all the hungry people that were fed as he took bread and broke it. You know, they remember the isolated prostitute who was brought into the center of community and family. They remember uh, the the people that were sick and they had all these skin diseases and were completely banished but then brought in like no more in quarantine. They're, they're remembering all of these things and they get overwhelmed watching him go now into the city as the king. And it says that they're overwhelmed with joy, just complete joy. And they burst into this song and they begin singing these lines from Psalm uh, 118 and we'll read it in just a second. But it's a song that was so powerful. It was about the the God who would come and would save and restore. Probably one of those songs that were taught to these kids over and over again when they were young. A song that they would have heard so many times about this promise and this day when the things that were rejected will be the things that were saved. And this, this psalm also is so important to these disciples. It ends up becoming uh, one of their favorite you know, source materials to copy and paste in their letters and in their theology. It's just like so core to them, this psalm. Uh, they must have been quoting it and singing it all across the Middle East and Europe for decades after decades. And, and this, this little phrase, you know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord is, is at this sort of high point in that psalm. But just uh, you know, the way the, the scriptures work, particularly the New Testament, when they reference just this one line, uh, they're trying to get you to go back and read the whole thing, try to try to remember the whole thing. Kind of like when you are uh, talking to your friends and you're like, hey, you, you know that movie with the alien and the finger? And then you are like, oh yeah, E.T. And you know the whole story in the background, right? Like that's that's what's happened when they do these little, these little quotes. It's like, oh, here it is. Here's one line of it. That way, you know, Luke doesn't have to scribe out this whole, like, 55-verse psalm. It's like, oh, now we know the song that they were singing. Okay, I've got it. Or, like I did earlier, you know, that one Tupac song, California, and you know the rest of it, or you should, because this is where we live. And that song is, like, the best for why, if you're ever like, why do I live here? Listen to that song. But anyway, this is what they're doing with this passage. Uh, And I want to read just part of it. It is a bit of a long psalm, and so I'm just going to read part of it. Uh, Psalm 118, uh, verse 15, is when I'll start reading it. And because this this is what's on their mind as they see Jesus descend into the city. This is what they're really singing and shouting there. It says this, it says, Shouts of joy and victory resounding in the tents of righteous." of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. As they're thinking about all the miracles and all the the times he went out and he touched people, when he touched the the casket of the the widow whose son was dead, they're thinking about the hand that had done really great things. The Lord's right hand is lifted up. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. It says this verse, I will not die but live. And I will proclaim what the Lord has done. These disciples who've now given their whole lives and they're beginning to understand, I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. And what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to proclaim what he's done. And they do. They go on to write 
all of this stuff about the things that Jesus had done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. That God, like Jesus, was rebuking them, teaching them hard truths through their whole life and their experience with him. But he doesn't turn me over to death. He doesn't push me out. Verse 19, open for me the gates of the righteous, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. The gate, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. And I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. And then this part I think you might remember. You might have heard before. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. This very day it's happening. Let us rejoice today and be glad. This is what they're singing over him. This is what the, the, the one that was thrown out, that was discarded, has now become the very central foundation thing, and it's a marvelous thing that we saw in front of our eyes. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession. Join in the party, right, as we go down into the city, the, the, the kingdom procession up to the horns of the altar. What they're talking about is the, the, this celebration, this, this festival celebration where you're going to go and give a sacrifice for the sins and the redemption of all these people. But they're singing it now of Jesus descending into the city, and he's going to go to the altar and be the sacrifice, pretty powerful. And it says at the end, it says, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. This is what was on their minds. This is what they, that they needed saving and that here he is, here he is right here. The hands that have done this mighty work. And it's not like they knew, but we know you know, the hands that would be pierced for our transgression, the mighty hands have been lifted up. Look at the works that he's done. He's done it this very day. Where does joy and worship come from? Uh, it comes from our guts. It comes from our stories. It comes from an understanding that on this day and these moments, on Mondays and Thursdays and Fridays and late nights and early mornings, that God has done an amazing thing. And that God has a name and it's Jesus and we rejoice and we are glad that Jesus saves. That Hosanna is not just a thing to hope for, but it's a truth that we know and that we see. How can you long for that kind of salvation? You know, do you need it? Do you want joy? You know, you have to behold and see Jesus, the King who comes. The King who comes in the name of the Lord. They also sing here, glory in the highest, peace in heaven. They're, these phrases that they're singing as well. The Pharisees turn and they say to Jesus, hey, you need to rebuke your disciples, teacher. You know, they're making too much of you. Like, it's a little embarrassing. Like, they're, they're treating you 
Like you're not just this good teacher. They're treating, they're using words. They're singing songs that are about God and about his mighty works, but they're ascribing them to you. Like you gotta put this down. Like this is not okay. Uh, They're fine with him being like, hey, you're a good teacher. Like we'll give you that award later this year. Like teacher of the year. Uh, You're a miracle worker. That's awesome. Like, hey, well, you know, maybe we could do a special miracle session in the city later. Uh, You're a clever rabbi. Like, look at these people. Clearly, they're following you. Like, that's really good. But don't let them worship you as the savior of the world or even just the savior of their souls. Like, don't let them make too much of you. And that's our temptation, too. I think we constantly live with this urge to resist making too much of Jesus, to to put too much of our hope, our confidence, our faith, even to give him too much of our glory, of our hands, of our voices. Like, that's like, ah, maybe he's just a good teacher. And Jesus' response is, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out if they don't. You know, if, if I tell them to be quiet, don't worry, the stones will. I love stones. I love, you know, uh, as a boy, I collected stones. Now I have a boy who collects stones. Uh, I, I kind of marvel at just like the, the permanence of it. You know, even when you're at like Zion National Park or you're walking around, you just see these great rock formations and you begin to realize like, this is the stuff from the beginning. And it's just all here. Uh, I think about how the permanence of them, even as I walk on, you know, the land around here, it's like, this is the stuff that was here before. Like, this, we didn't create these things. And that Jesus is saying this about the stones. I think about the stones that Abraham laid down as he came into Israel to, to sort of acknowledge, like, God has been faithful and brought me here. I think about the stones that, that had water gushing out of them in the desert. Those stones Or the stones that that David, you know, the five smooth stones that David took and he put into his pocket to defeat Goliath. Those stones are still out there. Like, they're still around. Uh, The the stones that Elijah kind of and his servants built together for this big sacrifice that then God came and consumed. Uh, The stones that were brought into the existence of the world through the voice and the breath of God when he said, let there be land and there was land. It's those stones that Jesus says will glorify and acknowledge and cry out for me. And this isn't the first kind of image of creation worshiping God. Uh, It's kind of, yeah, we have this really weird dichotomy now where we worship creation, but we don't understand that creation is actually worshiping God. But just a few of those, Psalm 148, seven to 10, it says this, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths. This is just kind of ironic. Like the worship leaders are telling creation to worship God. That's a pretty powerful note there for you, Danielle. Uh, the lightning and hail, the snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. And it says this, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals, all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, Praise the Lord from the earth. 
Then in Psalm Isaiah 55, 12, the prophet is kind of talking about, it's this whole thing about how God can restore and bring us into his kingdom. And this is what it says. It says, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands talking about how one day we're going to be led in this processional with the glorious, wonderful servant king. And what we're going to experience is the mountains and the hills giving songs that the trees like clapping their hands, just that excited and ecstatic. You know, uh, all of this means to me, and I think to everybody, is that Jesus is not just a big deal in a constellation of other big deals. No, he's not just like, oh, he's a shining star, but there's lots of other really big stars. There's other big things. You know, he's not a number one in a sea of amazing people. Jesus is the king of the entire world. The heavens and the earth all were created by him, through him, and exist to declare his greatness. The land and all that dwells within it belongs to him and is pleased with him. That the creation doesn't say, I wish that you know, we as the rocks were created differently, but existed this, this, God placed me here, and he is good, and he is wonderful, and it's this person riding on a borrowed donkey into a city that most people don't know about, he's the one. Uh, Jesus is the king who is so deserving of adoration Uh, that every California poppy and every rose and every lily and every carnation and the whole of the world blooming all at once for him is not enough beauty ascribed and adorned for this king of life. Uh, He is so worthy that that the existence of stars beyond the line of sight for us as humans, even with the amazing new telescopes that we have, which they are super, I mean, it's awesome. Uh, even like there are things beyond our ability to see. Even uh, DeGrasse Tyson said yesterday, this is a never-ending exploration. What this means that, that Jesus says, even the stones can cry out in this kind of invocation is that there are stars exploding. There's nebula existing that are incredibly glorious and wonderful and they exist just to declare and reflect his glory even though we won't see them and he's worthy of it. Jesus, here on the donkey, he is worthy of that kind of praise because he is hope, he is love, he is Savior. And when we stand before Jesus at the end of our days, I believe that we're going to have two simultaneous thoughts, right? And I I guess I'm just, you know, telling you how you're going to feel, but which is always dangerous, but you're going to have two simultaneous reactions. I think we all will. We're going to say, oh, wow. I didn't grasp your brilliance. My shouts of praise didn't even scratch the surface. We're going to think that. Then the very next thing we're going to think is, I'm so thankful that I get to praise this king for eternity. Those are the thoughts. He's that worthy. Jesus will not rebuke his disciples for celebrating the kingdom coming and the king riding into the city. He won't because he's deserving of it all. Worship is just getting started, and there's a lot more that he's worthy of. 
Jesus is everything. Uh, Don't be tempted to make him a good teacher with interesting stories. He is the Lord of heavens and earth. And then he does this really surprising, strange thing. Like people are throwing their jackets and their coats on the ground so that this borrowed donkey doesn't have to get its feet dirty. Like that's a wild thing. And then Jesus looks up and he hears these songs and he's, he's receiving this worship. And then he goes off to the side when he sees the city and he weeps. He cries over the city. And this word weeps, it's to wail and to sob, to howl like a dog or like a wolf, to be so grieved that your body shakes, that it's a a guttural thing. It's not a bunch of tears falling from your eyes, but you know, when you cry and it's every, you know, part of saliva and noises that you can't control, grief. Uh, One Greek scholar kind of writes in their notes because they just don't know. It's like, I wish I could put five, you know, paragraphs for this word. But one Greek scholar says this, that this grief, this weeping, it's the agony of unrequited grief, of, of you grieving over something that everybody else says is okay. It's the tears shed from a ruptured heart, he writes. That the, that the heart and what you long for and what you want to see happen and, and is so not happening to an extent that your heart ruptures. Not like a broken heart of, I liked him, she liked me, and then we moved to different colleges. Like, this is the agony of the world was created in such a way, but it's not that. Uh, we don't think about this, but this kind of grief hangs over Holy Week constantly. It's kind of even the obstacle and the passion of Jesus. That the thing that Jesus is trying to conquer and defeat as he goes through this Holy Week is not just you as individuals, popcorn, you know, bubbling up into salvation, but it's for a city to be free from the curse of sin. And something we often, I don't think, about a lot of times we take it really personally, like Good Friday, it's like, oh, Jesus died for me, which is so good and true. But he's, what Jesus is dying for is not just your sin, but the fact that sin is real and its effects are disastrous. That the human life and what we've done to creation itself and then to other people, it destroys human hearts, it wounds others, and it compounds wounds on top of wounds, pain upon pain, death upon death. It's this awful, catastrophic disaster, and Jesus weeps over it. He weeps over a city full of people doing this to one another. Because they won't see him, they won't acknowledge him, he will come into the city and they will say, there's a good teacher that we killed once. They will not experience the grace and the salvation from the pain of sin. You know, I think we grieve many things, uh, the loss of children, the loss of spouses, the loss of grandparents, uh, all of those things, but we often don't grieve the presence of sin in our city. Uh, We get irritated you know, people in this city just don't know how to drive. That's what I say all the time. Mostly because I saw that that's a main thing dads say, and so now I just want to live up to expectations. We get really calloused. Uh, 
We say things like, I just need a break from this city, or this city's really hard, or people in this city are really selfish. The city doesn't work for everyone, but we don't grieve it as a disaster because of sin. Uh, Grief and mourning is the way that we kind of resist the apathetic statement and the shrug, it is what it is. Jesus isn't apathetic. Grief, whenever you mourn and grieve and cry over the sin and brokenness of the world, you're saying, and you're joining with God and his heart saying, this is not okay. The death and the sin and the brokenness is not okay. When we're hard to being able to grieve that, it's when we've joined the chorus with the apathetic and say, that's their problem, that's their thing. But, this, but we are people, we're invited with Jesus to grieve the brokenness of our city. He says that they were not going to leave one stone unturned. Uh, that, that, that all of these people are going to die and experience destruction. But it's already been destroyed. I mean, he's talking about something that's going to happen 35 years in the future. And he's grieving it, not because there's this thing way in the future that's going to happen, but it's happened this very day. He said, if you, even you, had only known that on this day what would bring you peace. As he's sobbing and he's weeping. Jesus weeps at what sin and evil and darkness does to a city. And when we weep, uh, Rich Mullins, he once sang, uh, if I weep, let it be as a man who's longing for his home. And what he's, what he's talking about is the, the gap and the reason that we mourn because we're, we're weeping for the city that should be and experiencing the city that is. And we don't say it is what it is. We say it will be what he designs it to be, but it's not right now. Jesus doesn't call down fire. He doesn't call down judgment. He doesn't look away. He doesn't find distraction. He just keeps going deeper and deeper into the city. He enters it to die for what he's grieving over. That's the story of Holy Week. A God who weeps, a God who bleeds, because he wants there to be no more weeping, no more mourning, to make every sad thing untrue. One final thing about everything, uh, but it's about weeping also. This word, uh, Luke only uses it three other times, so for a total of four. Uh, which just for, you know, reference, it's like love and salvation, that's used, you know, 50, 60 times. But he uses this word weep only four times, close to the very beginning of Luke, when, when Jesus is just starting to teach people in the kind of the adult phase of his making of disciples. Uh, he starts the Sermon on the Mount and he says this, blessed are those who weep now, who have that kind of guttural weeping now, for one day you will laugh. That's the first time that this word comes up. And then there's this moment. This is the second. Jesus weeping now. Weeping over the city. And then next, in the midst of the trials that happen, uh, when Peter's denying Jesus and he's betraying him, he pretends he doesn't even know who he is three times. Uh, At the height of Jesus' suffering, and and then he finally realizes it because, you know, the, the crow crows three times, and he runs out. And Luke says, and he wept bitterly. Peter leaves, and then he grieves his own sin this way. And then the the fourth time, 
is there's uh, when the women uh, who are going to see Jesus later, but they're there at the cross and they're weeping and mourning and Jesus says, don't weep. He consoles them. Don't weep for me, weep for the city. And then, and I think this is really interesting and so I hope you will too. I think it's just so like amazing because those are the occurrences. The weeping, you know, like those who weep now, one day will laugh. Jesus weeping over the city, Peter weeping over his own denial, these women weeping over Jesus' death and then the city. Then on this amazing Sunday morning, those same women who were weeping and mourning on Friday, they come into the garden looking for death and instead find an empty tomb and an angel that says, don't look for the living amongst the dead. He's risen. And then they, then they remember and they go back joyful and shouting and they kind of filled with this awe and amazement. They go to the disciples and they say, Jesus actually rose from the dead. Best Easter sermon ever. And then Peter, you know, the disciples are like, these people are out of their mind. These ladies are crazy. They're just grief crazy or something. And then Peter, the one who wept bitterly, decides to go and he runs to the tomb where he finds for the first time and forever lasting joy. Those are the, what weeping gets turned into laughter. That's also what this week is about where we celebrate the king and all of his glory. And so I plead with you, uh, besides doing the devotional guide this week, to, uh, to grapple with how worthy Jesus is of truly being worshiped, and then also the, the abundance of, of joy that we will one day experience, even if now we mourn and grieve sin and brokenness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your life uh, we thank you that everything about this is true, that you are so abundantly worthy. Uh, help us live in that joy and be glad today because you have done this very thing. Uh, you've done the very thing that we sing about every Sunday, that we talk about every week. You have done it. Uh, we praise you, Jesus, uh, because you have never-ending love and never-ending action to accompany that love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.